Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode seven of the Showbound podcast presented by Axel Watches. I'm your host, Michael Raskin, and as usual, joined by my co-host, Barry Colt's star forward, Ethan Cardwell. Cardsy, what's up, man? Not much, man. How about you? Oh, nothing, man. I know um, you've been you've been keeping busy with some some cool stuff off the ice, or I guess on the ice, but a uh, bit of an entrepreneur yourself. Do you want to get into what you're doing right now? Yeah, dude. So I've just been running a lot of skates for younger kids uh, in the area, just keeping myself on the ice and then just trying to give back to uh, the younger population. I grew up in a smaller hockey town, Clarington, Ontario. So just uh, to be able to teach these guys the kind of skills that we're learning at the next level and uh, just prepare them for that. It's, it's been pretty cool. And then uh, just a lot of fun to be on the ice with the young ones. Uh, th- they're always buzzing around. You got a ton of energy, a lot more than me, even at uh, six 30 in the morning sometimes. So uh, I've been keeping busy and uh, it's definitely been a good little gig for me going forward. You also probably look the same age as all those little kids on the ice. Would you say that you got the baby face? You're a joke, man. Man, I can grow a beard. Come on. I, man, you, actually, we should put this in a clip right now. Um, clip this one uh, to the editor. Um, let's get my picture from when I was 16 and I got my first OHL goal. You got to see this picture, Rask. I right. looked so young and I was getting torn apart in uh, in the comments, like just getting ripped on. So then um, we did a little Saginaw banquet and uh, you had to go up and like announce yourself, be like, for example, just use Fetz for an example. He'd be like, Hey, I'm Cole Perfetti, uh, 16 years old from Whitby, Ontario, and I'm a centerman or something like that. So after I got torn apart in the uh, comment section on his photo, I uh, so I went up there and I'm a pretty fun like guy, and everyone knew in Saginaw, like it was a big thing. Like, I'm the baby face kid, like super young, whatever. Um, and yeah, I go up, I'm like, Hey, um, my name's Ethan Cardwell. I'm from Curtis, Ontario. I'm a right winger and I just turned seven years old. So then, uh, the crowd just started loving it. And then from there on out, I was just like the baby face kid and the, the young kid on the team. So that was kind of funny actually. And let's get that picture posted right now on the Insta. Cause it's yeah, hilarious. Let's do, it. let's do that. Um, we got a big episode, another, another big one. I think we've had some unreal guests lately, but this one was one that I was particularly excited about growing up and watching him it's it's rob shrimp as you can tell by now from the title but uh he's a first round draft pick of the edmonton oilers played five seasons in the nhl 2005 memorial cup champion with the london knights this guy had 145 points in 57 games i think that season or maybe it was the year after but i mean just like unbelievable numbers his entire ohl career um he's played in the world juniors twice for team usa he's played all around europe now still playing in latvia actually but He's known for having some of the best hands like ever. He played lacrosse on the ice, just um, highly skilled guy. And he has some cool stuff that we're going to get into that he's, he's doing off the ice with his new company, 44 Vision Hockey. So really good episode. I mean, his resume, I can go even longer about it, but uh, I'm excited uh, for this interview. And yeah, it's going to be a good one. Yeah, man. It's really looking forward to it. Uh, obviously, if you type in Rob Shrimp, you can see a ton of highlight clips coming up and uh just some of the stuff he does is just off the charts and a guy who's way ahead of his time and kind of really evolved the game. Um, but moving along, no, Raska, I mean, you're normally pretty ugly, but uh, you're looking a lot better today with your new showbound hat. Um, everyone go check out the Instagram. We'll be posting it. Uh, we have new showbound hats in. They will be for sale. And then we will also be doing uh, some fan giveaways and whatnot. So uh, be sure to check them out and uh, DM us for if you want to buy. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go from from a five to a ten, 
then uh, you definitely but you want, you want to rock one of these show about hats and you know what else makes you i mean it's not all about the face it's about the body and, and what makes you go from a five to a ten is axle watches as well man these things um bring a lot of attention there i've been rocking them uh on the pod and people have been saying i can like look at that watch it's sweet and um you know wearing it right now as usual kind of don't go anywhere without it and you know axle watches you can use the showbound 15 promo code for 15 percent off um obviously we love them and and you know that with a, a showbound hat and you're going to be you know you're going to be doing pretty well with whatever it is with the ladies or or whatever you you're really looking for but yeah, so definitely check out Axel Watches. Check out the Showbound Hats. We got a lot of good stuff going right now. Yeah, and from there, we'll, uh, we'll just kind of take it into the World Juniors here. Um, big shout out to the boys. Our first three uh, guests on the show are actually all selected to the Team Canada World Junior team and uh, Ryan Suzuki, Cole Perfetti, and Quentin Byfield. So best of luck to them moving forward in the tournament and uh, hopefully going to bring uh, gold back to Canada for the second year in a row. But I just want to talk about like – it. Um, obviously they went through the 14 day quarantine and then just two games right before they got into, into the final cuts there. So probably pretty nerve wracking guys are a lot, really rusty and whatnot, but, uh, pretty cool for those guys to make it. And, uh, they must've really, uh, taken their time in quarantine very seriously and stayed prepared as you must've had to ride in the bike and just trying to stay in shape in a hotel room for 14 days. I don't know about what you would do Ras, but like i think i'd go crazy like i i know they were getting like air fresheners and stuff sent in just because like the air was getting so stale and stuff yeah that's a that's a long time to be cooped up in a hotel room with nothing much to do but um i was talking to my buddy about this like they let them bring in their xboxes and stuff and playstations which um sometimes like isn't encouraged i guess in in these things i, I know nowadays like most most teams are okay with it but imagine if no one had any like video games or computers or anything and they just had to sit there like what would you do i i don't know um it, it was cool i heard hockey canada had a lot of cool guest speakers and programs for the for the guys to do so yeah i mean obviously it's a that's a tough situation and hopefully there's no further issues because i know we all want to see some exciting world juniors hockey and um i actually i heard on twitter you know everything's true if it's on twitter that nick robertson the Leafs, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs player may not be joining Team USA, and that's a, a big loss for them. Oh, he's not actually. Well, we were uh, we were in pause here. I just looked at their final roster. He will not be joining their team. Their roster just came out today, wow. but they do have some notables like Turcotte, Caulfield, Kaliev, some big name stars, and they'll be uh, a surefire contender there, and definitely give Canada a run for their money as they try to def- defend. But as we just talked about, they had a 14-day quarantine, man, and they're going to the bubble now, and they have to quarantine for another five days as soon as they get there. So I'm sure these guys are getting real sick of the quarantines, but um, a lot less stress now that they know they're on the team. And uh, after that quarantine, it should be smooth sailing, and we should see a lot of great hockey coming this uh, Christmas day. Yeah, I want to get into, uh, we, we touched on it last week with the Lo- Logan Paul Evander Kane thing, but it, it's come out since then that Logan Paul is going to be fighting Floyd Mayweather, you know, arguably one of the best ever. Um, I don't know if it's going to even be entertaining to watch. I think Floyd Mayweather might just kind of rag all around, but but uh, what do you think of that situation? Yeah, man, it's it's a weird one. Like Floyd Mayweather is so much smaller and weighs a lot less, but uh you can't you can't beat the best fighter of all time he like, doesn't get hit man he, he no he, he's he's just gonna dodge it and then just throw a few punches it may be a decision although i feel like he'll still be able to knock him out even though his reach isn't there 
but a funny little proposal my buddy bought my buddy brought to me is um what if uh the tchuk brothers fought the paul brothers i feel like they would just mop them like those guys are absolute goons like i i feel like they could just dummy them what's your take on that i would love to see that if we can get like an online petition going for that that would be pretty cool like i mean even like just like a two-on-two at the same time would be pretty sick yeah it's just like they're going no gloves nothing just scrapping in the ring just uh two-on-two either of them could like you could tag team like you could do whatever you want that would be that would be sick. I would love that, man. <laughs> yeah, the, this whole uh, they're getting a lot of attention. The the Paul brothers off this stuff too. Like I I I hadn't heard too much, and then all all of a sudden the last two weeks it's everything's like who's Logan Paul fighting, who's Jake Paul fighting, like all this stuff. So I don't know, man. The fight the fight game in the in the internet world is really buzzing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just before we send it over to our uh, interview with Shrimpy here. Uh, just want to say uh, everyone should go check out the uh, Royal Oak pubs located in Whitby um, in the North and South end uh, for some great food, great dining experience. And uh, they're available for takeout right now, obviously limited numbers going into uh, restaurants at this uh, point in time, but uh, everyone should go check it out and definitely uh, support local businesses uh, during these tough times. Yeah. And let them know that the showbound podcast sent you yeah, for sure, Rask. And now let's send it over to uh, Rob Shrimp. All right. We're pleased to be joined now by Rob Shrimp. Uh, Shrimpy, we, we just met your daughter, actually, right before the call here. Uh, can you just tell us about where, where you're living? I think you're in Latvia and you met your wife there. Is that right? Yeah. So it's, uh, we live in Latvia here. I played for the KHL team here, Dinamo Riga. And that's when I met my wife. And uh, we, you know, we stuck it out, stayed together. And now we moved back here uh, just last May. Uh, we had our daughter, her name's Stella. We had her when I played in Red Bull, uh, or played for Red Bull in Salzburg. So our daughter was born in Salzburg, and she's already traveled the world pretty good for for almost three-year-old. Yeah, and uh, I want to say I noticed you're playing again this year, but I I heard you retired before. Um, can you just tell us, like, what what made you want to come back? Yeah, no, this is I, – I have a hard time explaining this, but I, I don't want to talk the, the league down or the team down. Um, this is, a, you know, it's a little bit lower level league per se. It's not, uh, you know, trying to get to the KHL or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, team, it's a league in Latvia, it's the OHL and the, you know, all the games are right inside. Well, most of the games are within an hour of the city. And, uh, I was just skating with some guys just to kind of get on the ice, get some exercise in. And one of the guys out there, Oscar Bartolos, he knew the owner of this team. So he's like, you, you, you're interested in, and with the pandemic going on right now, I really didn't have much to do. You can't go anywhere. So. I decided it was great to get out, you know, practice, get a workout in every day. It's more of like, again, I don't want to talk down to it, but it's more like a hobby to me. You know, it's like, I'm not back playing, uh, doing this as a job per se. It's just, it's a good, you know, a way to get back in the locker room, get on the ice, get a workout in. And, and, you know, we all know how hard, like you can train as much as you want, but hockey is like one of the toughest things as far as, um, you know, workout wise, keeping you in shape. So. I jump back into it and just, you know, just for fun. Yeah. It'll definitely keep you in game shape uh, when you're out there all the time. And it's a different feeling for sure. So uh, I just want to kind of, I think we want to take things back in your career a little bit, rewind it. And then now uh, we'll go from there. So you could, uh, could you take us through your first year in the OHL, like first overall pick to the Mississauga ice dogs and uh, what that year was kind of like? Yeah, that was a, that was a great year uh, playing for Steve Ludzik. Got drafted first overall. Actually, Don Cherry and Trevor Whiffin 
Um, they were the group that drafted me and then right away they transitioned. And I think Don stepped away and Steve Ludzig and like a new ownership management uh, kind of came in. But um, my first year was, it was an eye opener for sure. Uh, kind of, I played tier two junior A Ontario provincial league, 14 and 15 year old year and had some success and was starting to kind of dominate at that level. And then coming into the OHL, you know, it was very eye-opening. You're going against like the Eric Stalls, the Mike Richards, Patrick O'Sullivan on my team. Like the level gets so it jumps up so fast. So it was really eye-opening. And uh, you know, it took a little bit of time. It took me about 10 games to adjust and kind of understand, you know, the tendencies at that level and the little areas where you can be successful. You know, it's like once you go from being a dominant player to hitting a next level of being, you know, I was just an average player at that time. It's such an adjustment. Well, I mean, 74 points in 65 games as a rookie, I believe. Uh, I don't know if we consider that average. That's pretty darn good <laughs> as a 16-year-old, but uh, yeah. It's like 14, 15 years really like dominating the game. You know, like I had control of the puck a lot, and I, I con- controlled the pace of the game, so to speak, One of the, the, like that kind of thing. And then when you get to the OHL, you learn that it's, it's – there's guys that are just as good as you and it's more about how to use your teammates and what you're doing away from the puck, those little variables. And you don't have so much control um, as like at, when you're dominating those levels before. We, we got to talk about your time in London. I heard uh, you've had quite, quite some memories there on and off the ice, but um, we, we talked about it a bit before, but I, I know you were a part of what was voted on, I believe as the, the best team in like junior hockey history, that 2005 London Knights Memorial cup champs. Um, what was it like being part of a team like that, winning almost every game all year and just dominating? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was sick. Just every day, every time coming to the rink, every game day coming to the rink, you knew, like you knew you were going to win. It wasn't, wasn't if maybe what you think we will, it was like, we're winning. Um, and we, we had such a good team. We had so many great players, um, you know, not just their names, the way they played, the way guys showed up, everybody everybody came, everybody brought it every single night. And it's, it's unique because we had some, like, we had like four or five studs and it was one of those things. Sometimes when you have four or five studs, it's, it's tough to distribute or um, each, you know, sometimes there's comes part of it where you want, you want to be the guy, right. When you're, when you're really, when you're a stud, but we had a unique group of guys where we, it was great. We bonded really well and we shared that responsibility really well. I mean, we had Corey Perry was the stud. Um, like he was the, getting a chance to be on that team and watch him. He was, he was the best player in, in the country at that time. And it started right from there. Pairs came every night when he played with such a great tenacity, but also skill. He'd be toe dragging, sniping goals. And then the second period, he'd be running, running over the goalie. <laughs> like he was so <laughs> dynamic. Like the games were, it was, it was unreal that year. Honestly, we had, you know, Danny Severett had an unbelievable year, was an unbelievable player. Uh, there were so many pieces that uh, it made it fun and you show up with that confidence and, you know, the other thing is too, is once we get a power play, we had such a good power play. As soon as we got a power play, we all knew we were going to score. Like that's such a good feeling. You know what I mean? It's, and then you're almost like, you're like, Dale put us out. Like we, cause we had two units, right? We had, we had such good players on the team. We had two stacked power play units that both clicked at over 30%. So it was almost that competition too of like trying to get Dale to make sure you'll put us out instead of the other one, right? Yeah, whoever so it was. Sorry, whoever's going on first is getting those extra points, and it's just just free points when you have the power play yeah. running at like fifty percent or whatever, something stupid, probably like that. 
Yeah, you knew you knew whoever went first was scoring. So it's like if if you didn't go for it, you knew you weren't getting out there for the PP because the other unit was going to score. So it's like it was a it was a pretty fun competition, which a healthy competition, right? Yeah, and you you talk about Dale Hunter there. I know that that following season, I believe you had 145 points in 57 games that year, which is just ridiculous. Two and a half points per game. But what did you learn from Dale? Like how did, how did he help you along, or, or did you have any struggles? Because I know. You were obviously unique uh, in the way you you played on the ice. Yeah, no, it wasn't smooth sailing by any means. When I first got to London, uh, Dale was hard on me, and I, and I, I didn't play a ton. Um, really, kind of, he was trying to mold and shape me into you know the player that he wanted to see me be, and the player that it takes to be in the NHL. You know, because there was a lot of I was a very highly offensive guy, and it was more that's what I thought about a lot. It was just how to create offense. There was only one side of the game for me. <laughs> So for me, I, I kind of took it, I took it uh, some hard lessons when I first got there. And then the second year was when I really kind of blossomed as a player and understood the game a lot better. And we won the Mem Cup that next year. But the first year, I got benched in playoffs. I got benched the uh, Western Conference final series. I, I guess I got benched for the, basically the whole series. Um, and there was other times during the course of the year I got benched. And that, that was something that was very brand new to me. I'd never been benched in my, my career going into that time. Um, so it was a, a lot of lessons that first year, but then the second year it was, you know, like I said, it just, everything kind of opened up. We had a great team. I was playing great hockey, both two way hockey, wasn't a liability on the ice and, uh, getting a chance to, to play for Dale really taught me, uh, how to, you know, taught all of us how to win. He's such a competitor and everything he does, he does to win. So it's, it's a very unique coach because the, the Sometimes when you get these coaches and they're making moves, a lot of guys are like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know how that is. Like you're on the bench, like what's this guy doing? When Dale was making moves and, and decisions on the bench, they usually paid off like right away. Like he would put out like one of our guys would get smoked. So the next shift, like Press would jump on my line. We'd go out like he'd be on the second line. Now we'd go out, Press, he would run their guy. One of us would get the puck and create a scoring chance. It changed momentum like that. So that decision was such a quick decision and it paid dividends right away. So he's very in tune to the game and his decision-making is unbelievable. And again, at the top of all that, it's, Oh, it's always the win. So it's, he's a really good coach in that sense. I want to get into um, you had a radio show in London, I think with Prust. Is that right? I got to hear about this. Yeah, yeah no, me and Prusty were on. So Jimmy Keller asked us because Prusty's a guy is a great personality and very, uh, you know, life of the locker room kind of guy. And I'm, I'm the sort of the same type of person. And they wanted uh, FM 96, Big D and Mindy and Gord was the radio show. They wanted some of the nights to come on. And they just wanted us to first to come on a couple of times. And then it turned into every Friday morning, Presty and I would go and do a pregame show um, and talk on the radio and pump up the game, talk about the team. And uh, it was it was great. You know, there's a couple sides of that. It was great for uh, kind of fan interaction, per se, like having the fans have a couple of us like Presty and myself in there talking about the team. Um, talking about the game that was coming up that night. And the other part of it was for Presty and I was interview and speaking, you know, it really helped us in that regard because you're, you're on a live show and you got to watch what you say and you got to, um, you know, use your words wisely and it makes you comfortable to speak into the microphone. So that's, it was two sides of us and, and me and him loved going in there. It was a great ritual. Uh, there was a couple of times they had, to <laughs> we got PP smack for what we said. <laughs> <laughs> It's a family show. You can't say that. But it was, it was a ton of fun. And Presty and I would go on there. And we, I mean, we were at a great relationship. We'd be chirping each other on there back and forth. But it was, uh, 
it was something uh yeah we love doing it and now that i think about it it was kind of comical it's hilarious we were on a radio show every friday morning chirp and the other team Presty would be talking about who he's gonna who he's gonna shit kick the night that night and i'd be talking about how it's gonna go bar down and just you know it was so it was so fun that's that's unreal and uh I want to also know, I, I know you got this nickname, Bob the Builder in London. Do we want to get into that at all? Do you want to touch on that? That's it. We used to get winding it up and having a few pops with the boys. Bob the Builder was uh, the builder of good times. So I'd be kind of, like I said, we we're Preston and I were the same kind of charismatic guys. And I would be the guy that get wound up and get everybody going. So I'd always build, you know, a couple pops and I'd be building good times. So Bob the Builder was my nickname for a, for a long time. The classic. <laughs> Frank the tank, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then um, from London, like obviously uh, you got to play in the World Juniors, I believe twice. Um, we got the World Juniors coming up in a different style this year. Uh, kind of what was that experience like being able to represent your country not only once but twice and uh, being a key piece of the puzzle there? Yeah, it was awesome. You know, it was really great. It was it's such an honor to get picked. And uh, when you first see that list and see your name on it, that's that's a huge accomplishment you know some great players and you're, you're competing with your countrymen to be on there and then and then it turns into you know now that your brothers you're going out and trying to win a championship for your country so you have that you know the summer tournament there where it's the tryout at Lake Placid and again it's every man for themselves there so it's such a component of it like everybody wants to beat the next guy and then when your name gets picked on that list for that roster 23 24 man roster it's such there's so much pride that goes into that and accomplishment but excitement and you really world juniors is huge right and i didn't realize that to be honest with you until i got to canada my rookie year in in the o and seeing the passion behind the world juniors and um how much you know how really important it is and then also when you start talking about it in the sense of your career it's it's huge for your draft it's huge for recognition to kind of you know gives you it sets a stage for you to, to gauge where you're at in your game with basically the best players in the world at that age bracket. So world Jays is awesome. It's such a, it's such a great thing to get picked for. Um, and then obviously being an American guy and playing in Canada, I think those guys got picked as well. Dan pairs and Civi were on that super team. My first year I played in uh, North Dakota. That was, uh, that was wild. The team that those guys had. Holy crap. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And, pretty cool just to be able to represent your country and whatnot as you mentioned and uh we'll be we're really excited to watch uh this year's world juniors in a different fashion they'll be in the bubble in uh edmonton so and then just moving on obviously you're known as one of the most highly skilled guys really like ever to play the game and uh you pulled off a lot of crazy moves before anybody else kind of knew what they were like had any clue what was going on on the ice like the lacrosse move picking up the puck skating down the ice you know um, was that kind of frowned upon at the time, like your coaches and whatnot? Like, did they, they say like, you got to stop this or, or did they encourage it? It was, it was heavily frowned upon <laughs> and by the hockey community and, and, and kind of as a whole, it was very much, uh, it was almost, uh, I got pegged with like the hot dog tag, you know, because I was doing these things and now I, you know, there was times when my dad came to every game, so my dad would be in the stands and the things like he would be hearing of people saying about me doing it. And these were like scouts and important people. And it was kind of, it's actually, it's funny. Now I'm watching the game and you see in the warmups, they're really like marketing and highlighting what this high-end skill stuff these guys are doing in the warmups. I, I did that since I was 12 years old. And it was literally, for me, it was something where doing that stuff, it's not easy to do. 
and doing it in warmups, it's like really dialing your hands in. And, and, and for me, it was like an energy builder and it was fun. And it was, um, again, like if you can do those types of things with the puck now, like simple stuff, as far as like just normal stick handling, normal passing and normal shooting, like that stuff is, it's very simple compared to playing lacrosse with the puck during warmups. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So like the simple stuff has become very simple. And I think it's, it was back then it was not well received. It definitely wasn't. I know it wasn't. I mean, like I said, my dad heard a lot of these things in the stands, people, what they were saying and the stuff that I was getting told to cut that shit out or that's for, it's for a certain time and place, that kind of stuff. It was, it was really frowned upon, but it, for me, it was like, I'm just trying to take my game to the next level. Like this is something I, I like to, I first enjoy doing it. Second of all, it's, it's just, it's like making me better even like picking it up and swirling around like lacrosse stick is a little bit showy. Yeah. But at the end of the day, for me, like growing up a big inspiration for me was Michael Jordan. He was a showman. He was a champion and he was the best player that ever played, but he did all those at the same time. That's something I wanted to be able to do as well. I wanted to be able to be unbelievable at the game. I wanted to win and I wanted to be able to entertain you. And, you know, that's how I saw it. And, in that time, in that culture, it was kind of like if you tried to stick out, it was like you were you were a hot dog and you're not falling in line sort of thing. So it was not well received. But for me, I just stuck to my guns. I, I, I knew what I was doing. I knew that it was not easy to do. Not many people could do it. And I just I was a little bit stubborn, too. So I, I wasn't going to stop. <laughs> do you think that stubbornness yeah. was kind of what uh, I mean, you still you went first round uh, in the NHL draft to the Edmonton Oilers, but um, you went later than I guess maybe you had expected or people had expected. Do you think it was that stubbornness that maybe caused your, your draft to slip for you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'd say for sure, but yeah, definitely like a stub, very stubborn. Um, but I think it's tough to say um, maybe misunderstood in some regards, you know, the stubbornness. I, my, my, like I said, I told you what my values were and the way I saw the game, I wanted to win, which was first and foremost, I wanted to be the best player. And I wanted to entertain people, but that's how I felt. And that's how I still feel about the game. Um, those core characteristics or those core uh, values are not a bad thing, but the stubbornness, as far as not wearing white skates, not <laughs> flipping the puck and playing lacrosse with it, I wouldn't stop doing it. So, you know, those things maybe, you know, cost me a little bit in the long run, but um, yes, yeah, it's something. Yeah. I don't know. There's no, there's no answer to it, but. Would if you could go back, would you change anything about that? No, I just think it was a little bit before my time, and 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 like I said, now it's more celebrated, and you see it happening, and uh, you know, even stuff like I, I just mentioned, but like even the white wheels, I wore white graphs. The story behind that was Graph gave me free skates, and they came out with those gray white wheels, and I was fortunate enough to be in a place where they had offered to to give them to me for free because I was, you know whatever you want to say, like a bigger name in the game. I had some success as a young age. I was well-recognized and I, that was a great opportunity. Free stuff for our family was amazing. And they were like, will you wear these white skates? I was like, I'll wear whatever you give me for free. <laughs> then I started lighting and then they're awesome. And I started, you know, rocking them. But that cat, that crew, that gave me like a lot of bad attention too, like wearing these white wheels. I, I never understood it, but now you got it. Now they're like putting the world jays this year you just see the bower line that came out they, they look sick and now that's yeah. like no yeah. like three four years ago like all the tough guys and then it's like tough guys wearing white wheels the coach made me send my wheels back i got them i got a brand new pair of white skates and they made me send them back and get normal 
normal grass without the white design on it. Wow, that, that's crazy. And you did mention that a uh, little bit before your time, I mean, believe now, like if you're coming up doing all this stuff in the OHL and whatnot now and your first few years in the show, it'd be, you'd be flourishing, obviously, and getting so much uh, social media hype, as we talked about before, no Instagram back then and stuff like that. Uh, but can you, can you kind of take us through your time in Edmonton? Um, I know you were up and down between Edmonton and Springfield. So what, what was kind of that like? Was uh, the adjustment period? And then did you ever like have a moment where you were like, well, now I'm in the NHL, like reality set in or, or a moment on the ice where just something was different. You're like, okay, this is the show. Yeah. My time in Edmonton wasn't that like, I never got that. I was three years. I only played seven games. So, and it was one game first year, two games, second year, four games, the third year. And then, um, so I never had that chance to get settled there and, and really get into a groove and feel, uh, you know, at home, so to speak. It was mm-hmm. most of my time. was first year in Wilkes-Barre and then the next year's in Springfield. But that moment that you're describing came in Long Island for sure. Um, even when I got there, I, I had to wait a while to get in the lineup. My first four or five games I played, uh, they picked me up off the waivers and I played f- like five games on the right wing on like the fourth line. It just, there was no room. And that wasn't really my position. So I had to wait. They told me, they're like, you're going to have to wait till someone either gets injured or plays himself out of the lineup. And I waited about 20 something games. And then finally something happened. I got in and it started just clicking and maybe four or five games into finally getting in the lineup in a normal third line groove. It felt good. Because, uh, actually the Colorado goal baseball goal was one of those moments. It was like, it made me, I don't know. It was, it was a big moment for me. Cause it was like, I can do some high end stuff at this best level in the league. Like I, I can do this stuff. It made me like believe in myself more and be more confident and, and comfortable where I was. And it, uh, it also helped solidify my spot in the lineup a little bit. So I didn't have to worry. Am I in tonight? Am I not in tonight? I just started to get into a groove and in, in producing for the team. So a couple of shootout goals as well. Once I had those things under my belt, it made me feel like I didn't have to check the lineup every day worry if I was going to be in the stands or in the lineup. So, um, yeah, Long Island was really where I finally got to be comfortable and, and just settle in and, and just worry about playing. Yeah. And, and you really did kind of establish yourself as a legit NHLer with the New York Islanders, but you, you obviously, you mentioned that baseball goal. I, I have to ask you, um, what was kind of going through your head? I, I can you take me through, you, you obviously you caught the puck and then kind of dropped it and swung it midair. Whereas, I think most people would maybe catch it and drop it on the ice and then try to hit it. So like, just, can you, what, what was your mindset there? Like, how did that go about? Yeah. I remember, I remember Franz Nielsen walking into, he ripped a clapper. I tracked the puck. I saw it hit and it was in the air and it was, it was, just, it literally like seemed like, like time just stopped. The puck was floating. And as I saw it coming down, I could see Adam foot start to turn around I'm like, man, if, if I take my time with this, he's going to, I know he's a gritty guy. He's just going to turn around and bury me. So as it's coming down, I kind of caught him out of my vision. I touched him with my glove and I was like, man, that's perfect. I'm like, screw it. Just hit it. And I took a swing at it. And it was just, it literally, it felt like it just stopped right there perfectly for me. And then I hit it. And once I hit it with contact, I, 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 I knew it was in, I hit it perfect. And I was oh, like, yeah. well, then it went in. And I was like, holy, you know what I mean? <laughs> Craig Anderson, the guy I grew up skating with. And, and he's a really smart goalie, right? So he's, he's a very, I grew up in the summertime skating with him all the time. And he's one of those goalies that he knows his angle so well. When you skate with him in the summertime, you lose so much confidence because he, he you never score on him because he knows how to take angles away perfectly. So the fact that it, the, you know, 
that goal happened against Andy, it was like, it was more to it as well. I was like, I was like, F you, Andy. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> summer, and I just got this highlight on you. But um, no, yeah, when it, it was just like, it was such a, it was a great moment until the ref, I heard the ref blow the whistle and say no bowl and waved it off. And then I was like, no way. You just crippled me. I was ready to sell it so hard. That's wild. And then obviously it's a highlight that's been shown around the world for years and uh, we'll, we'll continue. And then after your time in Long Island, uh, you headed over to Atlanta and in, in the Thrashers organization. And what was it like there? You, uh, did you enjoy your time there? Yeah, it was good. It was, uh, it was short, but it was good. When I first got there, there was a chance of playoffs. It was, you know, we were right in the hunt and, um, they, I got picked up on the waivers and it was really, again, there, I had to wait a minute to get some playing time there as well as slotted in the fourth line and kind of, you know, five or six minutes a game, but I was happy to be in the NHL. Just, okay, wait it out and grind and I'll climb back up. And then, you know, we slipped out of a playoff spot and I started to get some more playing time and it felt like I started to fit into that group pretty well. And uh, then the season ended and, Never knew that they were moving. We had no idea. They were new. No one was talking about the fact that they were moving to Winnipeg. I found out. I thought I was going to have a job back there. Um, knew the management well there. They knew me well. Rick Dudley was a guy I've known since. Uh, he was a really good friend of Steve Ludzik. And I know him since I was 16. And, and I'm like, fine, I got a spot where someone believes in me. And I'm going to, you know, I, I think I can, even if I get a one-year contract, I know I can do some good stuff here. And then we got a text from Andrew Ladd. And like, I think it was like, I want to say June. Like boys, pack your winter clothes. The team got sold and moving to Winnipeg, and, it was, and then it was like, oh man. So that 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 wasn't that that part wasn't the big part. The big part that sucked was they they changed the whole management. They fired Dudley. They fired everybody. And I was like, well, there goes my end. <laughs> like, <laughs> and as soon as the new management came in, they you know obviously I, I had no, uh, I don't want to say value, but like I'm not a draft pick. I just got picked up off waivers. I wasn't a priority the organization and it instantly was kind of like, Hey, when you sign a two way or, you know, I was going to be a minor league guy. And that, that kind of like, I was like, that happened fast. Like, so now what? And uh, so it was good. It would have been nice. The only thing is, you know, obviously the fan base and stuff wasn't that big there. So it was tough coming from my best experience in hockey with fan base wise was London. We had 10,000 a night, every single night, the fans were wild. The fans were crazy my NHL career, um, you know, even Long Island, it was in a tough time for the organization. And then when I went to Atlanta, there was, I mean, we had like five or 6,000 fans in a 20,000 seat building. It's that's pretty empty. So um, it would have been sweet to go to Winnipeg though, playing in a hockey market. I, I love that stuff. Playing in London was, I love the going to the grocery store and people want to talk hockey with you and always have, you know, being on a radio show and talking about games. Like that's, that's to me, I'm a kind of a hockey nerd. I love that stuff, but, it would have been great to go to Winnipeg, but it didn't work out. We interrupt this interview for an important message from our sponsor. Support for the Showbound podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in the men's below-the-waist grooming industry. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Big news, Manscaped just launched in Canada. For those listeners in Canada, you can be one of the first Canadians to experience their life-changing products. I think everybody has a, a story or a time where they've hurt themselves below the waist while trimming or grooming, and that's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team perfected the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and have their new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. 
the battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can have a longer shave. The waterproof technology allows you to groom in the shower. One of the coolest features is the LED light which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trim. They've also upgraded to a 7000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology and let's not forget about the charging stand. Show your mower off loud and proud because this intelligently designed stand is a convenient charging dock powered by USB. If you are listening to me speak right now, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. Trim that junk of yours. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SHOWBOUND at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SHOWBOUND at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code SHOWBOUND. It's time to shave those balls, eh? Is, is that kind of what led to you going to Europe? Because that following season, you went overseas. Um, did, did you just not have any offers or uh, what was that decision like for you? Yeah, it's a lot of two-way talk and I maybe a press judgment too fast, but the two-way talk for the guy that's a waiver wire kind of pick up, it's, it's usually like second cut or first cut in training camp because they got their draft picks, they have their high paid guys and you're just, you know, down the chain. So for me, I was looking to like, I, I do not want to go back to the minors. I, I spent my three years there. Um, I figured go to Europe and, and just put up some numbers and have a successful season in, in, a, in a top league and then try to come back. There's other guys that had, had taken that path and it worked out. And then, so I said, you know, I was not scared to do that and went to Sweden, which is a top, very top league. And uh, the other thing is the skating in that league is, is what it's really well known for as well. That was something I, I could benefit from was, you know, faster pace. Uh, I had a great year in Sweden and then the next year was a lockout. So I was, it was kind of, yeah, there was no option. So it was a tricky time to go over. So yeah, when, when you got overseas there, uh, you were playing in Sweden, you said, and uh, the the skating and uh, everything that comes along with that. And the people or the players overseas are often highly touted for their skills and stuff like that. So uh, that that seems like an amazing fit for you. What, what was it like being able to play maybe more of a skilled game than the uh, North American uh, gritty and tough dump pucks in kind of game? Yeah, it was an eye opener. That's, um, you know, I think not having much knowledge of what the style was in Europe. I think being in North America, you're very close minded. Your focus is NHL or, you know, that's your dream. You don't really pay attention to the other side of the pond. And I think and when we're in North America, we don't realize how good hockey is in Europe. Neither did I. I thought I was going to go over to Europe and I'm, I'm going to light it up. It's, you know, I'm going to put up junior numbers kind of thing. And I got to Sweden. And I was like, holy shit. It was unbelievable hockey. It was so, it's very structured. It's very fast. The guys are in unbelievable shape. And, you know, you think again, the big ice, it's going to be wide open. It's not, it's actually complete opposite. Um, that, you know, cause it's a bigger ice surface to get into those areas where it's a deadly threat to the net, they pack it in there and they really protect it well. So that's why it's so skilled because you got to create, you have to make two, sometimes three passes to generate a great A scoring chance in Europe. Where in North America, it's like, if I can get this defender two or three feet outside the faceoff dot, I open up a grade A scoring chance for my player. It's a bang, bang in North America. Where in Europe, it's again, it's two, sometimes even three passes connecting on to get a grade A scoring chance. So it was an eye opener for sure. My first 10 games, I only had two or three points. And I was like, whoa. Wasn't playing. I was playing good hockey and I was creating. And then, and again, like you, I was used to that. Like I make a play and the next, like if I make a pass, that guy's got a great A opportunity over there. It wasn't happening, right? It wasn't generating any points. It was like, it was really an eye opener. But luckily, I had a good coach, Alf Samuelson, and Peter Forsberg and Marcus Nazem were the general managers there. 
and they just, they were really patient and they were like, this is how it, you know, if you're playing good hockey. Don't, don't get discouraged. Like this, this isn't, you're not going to score a hundred points in this league. Like this league is a very good league and you're playing good. We're happy with you. Cause that's the other thing. 10 games in, I got three points as an import. thought I was going to come and light it up. I was like, man, are they gonna, like, am I going to get gas? Like, <laughs> you know, is it worth it? But uh, luckily, luckily for me, they were really patient, but it was an eye opener and it's, it's really good hockey. And again, the game is the tempo. The game is very fast. And um, you do have that, you know, it's not as much crash and bang, but it's, it's more footwork and they're in your face all the time and their speed is always on you and they close your gap all the time. So it's, you know, again, in North America, it's like, to your point, it's a lot of like wall battles and D trying to crush you where over there, it's more, they almost run you down with their energy and their, and their speed. You played in five different countries over there. What, um, for the listeners, what was your favorite country? Like the, the experience there and, uh, kind of take us through what it, what it's like playing in, uh, overseas and the differences in from uh, North America from a living standpoint. Yeah, I think, uh, it's toss up between Austria and, uh, Switzerland. They're, they're beautiful countries, like living in a postcard, uh, really, really great living. And, uh, I enjoyed the time there very much. And I was in Germany a very short time. Nuremberg was a great city. Uh, Sweden, I lived in northern Sweden both times, in Skelleftia and in uh, Ernskosvik, Modo. Uh, that was tough. That was, it's very, it's just like country land and it's dark. You get like two hours of sunlight in the, in the wintertime. That was a little bit tough. Yeah. But uh, Austria is beautiful and Switzerland is beautiful. The only thing, the only problem, Switzerland's problem with the tough part, it's, it's super expensive to live there. Even if you're eating at home and not dining out every night. So Austria is that thing where it's the same, uh, same kind of scenic beauty, but it's very much more affordable. Um, but it was, it, they're, they're great places going up on the ski lifts and going to upper ski and uh, totally different lifestyle. And I found playing in Europe, it was a lot, you know, I don't want to say it's not, there's pressure. You got to show up and you got to play, but it's not as much stress like it was in North America, it's such a, it's such a rat race to get to the show and everybody's out for themselves and put, trying to pull their, you know, to get there. And you're always worried about being in and out of the lineup, those kind of stressors. Um, I just found Europe to be less, less stressful in that regard. It was, uh, yeah, a little bit different in that regard. You know, if you're sick, like in, I use this example, like if you're sick in the NHL, if you get the flu or in the HL, you get the flu, you're like, I'll play, I'll play, I'll play in Europe. They're like, Hey, take your time. Like get better, feel better. When you feel better, you'll play where like back here or in North America, you're kind of like, if I get out, if I take this week off, like someone's going to take my spot and I'm out, you know, it's totally different mentality. So uh, that that part was a little bit different. It's kind of nice, actually. And in Europe, you get those um, breaks, I guess, I think two or three, two breaks throughout the year just for national team stuff. Did you ever go uh, go anywhere fun during those breaks or any make any good memories there? Uh, I went to Spain one year. Um, when we were in Switzerland, we went to Spain. But uh, the one – and then the what, first year I was in Sweden. It was nice. We had the Deutschland Cup during the, um, during the one break. So we got a chance to go play for USA in that in Germany and get to be around – you know, that first year being away from North America, new countries, you know, different language all the time in the locker room. It was nice to have that break and go see some American guys and play some, uh, played some good hockey, but be around some American guys and see Germany, Munich. It was amazing. Um, didn't really venture off too much, you know, in those breaks, especially when you're in Switzerland and, and Austria, you really don't have to go anywhere. You're in a beautiful place as it is. So go into like a, you know, a nice little like hotel ski resort sort of thing with what we would, uh, me and my wife would do 
there was no, I didn't really want to get in a plane, travel, you know, spend two of those days on travel days bombing around. Uh, so we usually just went to like a spa resort sort of thing and relax, but it's again, that part of it too. Like you get three breaks in the middle of the season, like that, that, that doesn't exist in North America. Yeah. <laughs> it's randomly 14 days off from games and you get like seven or eight days in a row off. And it's like, this is awesome. <laughs> it's so yeah. nice. Living in paradise over there. And then, uh, we just touched on how many countries you got to play in and, uh, different experiences. So, and the languages. So how, how many languages do you speak? Like, do you speak like a bunch of different languages or what's the deal there? No, man, you know, the locker room is there's nobody there. It's going to like tutor you on the language. They just teach you the bad words and how to, you know, the expressions that if you say it as a, uh, an import, everybody laughs kind of thing, but, uh, learning Latvian now, my, obviously my daughter, she speaks it fluently and my wife's family speaking. So I'm starting to pick that up and that's it. But it's some tough languages. Swedish is super tough. Um, yeah. Then Sweden was my second tour in Sweden. Is like, I never understood the in-between periods coaches speaking Swedish. I don't know what's going on. Do I <laughs> kind of go off in your own, you just, you know what I mean? He's sitting there talking, even if he's mad, I don't know what he's saying. If my name doesn't come out of his mouth, I'm, I'm doing all right, I guess. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, no, that's like the imports on my team and like over uh, in the OHL now you have imports and they'd be like, like they'll be getting yelled at or something and just like pretend like nothing's wrong. Like, yeah. like ah, well, I didn't know. I, I don't know the language. So it's not my fault. Whatever. <laughs> Screw up a drill. Ah, whatever. I didn't know. Yeah. Good excuse. Good out. Yeah. I know you're doing some, some great work off the ice now. I believe you started 44 vision hockey. Can you just talk about what you're doing? What everything about that, what it is? Yeah. So now it's 44 visions, a, a platform. We got a bunch of coaches together have some great resumes in the game had played a high level, super high level NHL, AHL and great European careers. And then on the women's side, we have uh, Olympic team members on there. And the idea with 44 vision platform is to coach players through their game film. So we watch, you know, a client comes on board and you have, you know, like I'll go into the player and just go through this for me, I'll teach, you know, let's say offensive creation, what to look for, the, the kind of details on how to create these things. So if it's a power play guy working on half wall stuff, whatever position in the power play, really helping them understand the details in their game film. So it's, it's not something along the lines of like, Hey, watch, you know, watch Crosby and then do what Crosby does. Like that has value for sure. But like what, what is more valuable in my opinion is having that player having his game film and showing them where he missed the window of opportunity or how he could have created that window of opportunity. And that's the real idea of it. It's just taking their, their game film and using that resource to get better. And I think, you know, what's even seen, you see it now in the NHL guys get off a shift. They come back to the bench, they watch the iPad right away. Cause that's, that's details and that's information for them. So same thing. Now we're talking to 13, 14, 15 year old, um, their game, we don't get my pads on the bench, obviously, but after those weekends, they have these tournaments. You take those games and use that resource to learn and get better from having players or coaches like that we have on the 44 vision platform are, are really knowledgeable people been there, have great experience and great knowledge in the game, teaching them the, the tangibles or teaching them the areas. Um, you know, for me, it's, a, there's a lot of, uh, player development or skills development people out there, or a lot of camps out there. This was a different Avenue. I thought that would be very beneficial on, you know, game, game analysis and hockey IQ building and showing them where these things apply in the game and how to, you know, you take it a step further. If there's something a player doesn't understand, I'll give them practice specific practice plans on how to work these routes. Let's say it's a half wall guy working on manipulation to, to create lanes or manipulation to create a shooting 
opportunity. Then you give them those kind of things to go on the ice and work and dial those things in and kind of perfect them. Now, uh, you, you also, you touched on that you're working with the, the women's side of the game. You have some great coaches there. I've heard you speak on this before, but I want our listeners to get a chance to hear it. Um, obviously, the state of the women's game right now is, is pretty weak in terms of, you know, having a sustainable model. But I know I've heard you speak on some ideas you've had. Can you just touch on, on some of those? Yeah, no, definitely. I think so. This start with this, this part of it too, with the platform, I think it's huge to have these women's knowledge and experience in their, you know, their expertise going back into the youth. So having the girls teach them, I, I, I work with some girl players, but I saw a ton of value and I want to create a lane for the women to be able to circulate their knowledge back in the game. And, that, and I didn't see that being a huge opportunity for a lot of them. They get to a certain point, they get to the NWHL or whatever, or some get into college division one and afterwards they have to, they can't go and donate their time for charity for too long. You have to make a living and do something. So making a lane of, of a jobs of some sort uh, and being using that resource. So we start with that and you start developing the players at a younger age um, was one, one idea that I have with it. And, and growth is what's important. Grow the game, grow the, the young girls, hockey IQ and knowledge. And then the other one that I, I firmly believe in would be, you know, the rink sizes is, is, is bringing the rinks in. I think it makes it, you know, for me, my experience in the game, I went from the NHL or call it whatever, North America. In North America, I could walk off the half wall. And if I got to the dot line, maybe from the top of the circles on the dot line, I could rip a shot and score. When I went over to Europe and I went to the top of the circle on the dot line, took a shot, it's like six to eight feet further out. It's like playing catch with the goalies. So it's having that bigger rink, it's, it, it makes it it's different. It changes the dynamics of it. For women's hockey, I think what also, when you're talking about consumers and having it be somewhere where we get, uh, people can appreciate how unbelievable these girls are with a smaller rink. It, it, it changes the eye test for me. So when you're watching Patty Kane walk off the half wall, then if you're, you take him out and you insert a girl or a woman's player going in there, it's they're on the same shape, the same size ice. It's, but you're competing against Patrick Kane. None of us can compete against Patrick Kane as far as the consumer. And, and you know what I mean? Like that's just a better, um, he's, he's a better player on that surface if that makes sense but what happens is when you bring it in you bring the action in and i think you can really maximize these women's uh their talent and their i mean they're sick the game that they played in anaheim they had a showcase term i think it was a showcase game last year it was unbelievable the backhand toe drag it was like a highlight reel the whole game was a highlight reel there were so many unbelievable moments how do you maximize that because you're you, for them we're talking about a sustainable model you, you have to talk about consumers and people paying to, to watch the games right and how do you get creative with that I, I don't know if I that's my opinion on it is bringing the bringing the you know the size of the rink in for them and I worry about speaking about that because it's not saying that they're less for me it's actually saying they're just as good or you know and you want to maximize that and how do you do that and I think just I think changing the size of the rink because it changes the product you want, you want to change the product. You're not, you aren't the NHL. You're not the men, you're women. And you want to show how unbelievable you are. So it's not the same product. It's two different products. So how do you separate that, but get the same appreciation? I think that's my opinion on it. I don't know. I mean, I don't, and I also don't have like a billion dollars to go build a yeah. bunch of rinks to bring the walls in. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just an opinion. But I, I know how good the girls are and how hard they work and I know how much passion they have. And I think I, I want to help them 
get what they deserve as well. And I appreciate what they do. And I think it's amazing how they, I mean, I, I was, for me, it really came to realization too. David Boland and I were training with Rebecca Johnson and Bailey Brown in London and the way that they brought it to the gym every day and their passion. And, you know, it really opened my eyes up to how much passion they had. And then I watched and started watching, paying attention to them play hockey. And I was like, man, it's unbelievable how much they deserve a lot more my opinion so how did it make for me how can i help with this platform i went to those girls and try to create a lane and um and some sort of you know this is i want to call it a job but it's an opportunity to make money for their expertise to pass that along to the youth so that helps the game grow it helps these girls have some kind of revenue and in, in for their expertise and then the, the rink idea again hopefully someone that is a billionaire grabs it and, and runs with it but uh, that's my two cents on it it's just it's tough when you're talking about consumers, it's an eye test, right? And you can't force a consumer to what they like, so to speak. You can't force that. It's they like what they like. So how do we change my opinion on it? It's changing the size of the ranks. Yeah, I think that's that's really yeah. well said. And I, I'm a big believer in, in that they deserve more too. And I think that those, though, I loved hearing you say the, those ideas when I heard them the first time. So I wanted to bring that up and I, I think it's fantastic. Hopefully it, it can come to fruition one day, but um, I just wanted to ask as well, obviously the number 44 is super significant to you. Uh, what, what made you choose 44 in the first place? Yes. Yeah, it was my dad's best friend's uh, number growing up and he actually passed a year before I was born. And then I was created and they, they named me after his best friend, Robbie Stewart. So uh, that number obviously was given at a young age four, but then, then I understood the story growing up and, and the, um, the meaning of it. And that it grew on me and, my dad's best friend was a great athlete and um, you know, it's just, yeah, it grew on me and it has such meaning to it. And my name came from Robbie Stewart. So um, it's, it's, yeah, it, it sucked when it, it, I got it in Edmonton uh, pronger left then I got it. And then Surrey came and I lost it. I'm not I'm pretty sure I'm not getting that number when those two guys are around, but um, yeah, the number is super, you know, it means a lot to me. It's, so that's a that's the story behind it that's really good to hear and I, I think that pretty much does it for all of our questions um i know we'll be sending you an axle watch uh from our presenting sponsor at axle watches and jason guy and uh i mean if you're gonna be rocking if shrimpy can rock it i, I think it'll uh be a good look and he's got some of the silkiest mitts in the game so i think everybody else should be rocking them too and uh no i just want to say thanks for coming on Really appreciate uh, being able to pick your outstanding hockey mind and uh, thinking so far ahead of the game. And uh, we really enjoyed our time today. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. And uh, anything I can do for you guys, help you out. Or, and anytime you want to have me back on or whatever I can do to help you guys grow. And I appreciate your time and, and, and uh, picking, my, picking my brain and picking part of my career. It's, it's been fun talking about it. What a great interview that was. Shrempy's such a good guy and hearing his his unique journey and, and some struggles, which we haven't really heard too much about on this podcast yet, was super interesting. Yeah, dude, uh, pretty sick guy to have on. And like like you said, he's just a great guy all around and uh, shared some amazing stories from all over the world and uh, some different experiences that uh, our listeners probably haven't heard before. Yeah, so before we get into the Bachelorette segment, I just want to talk about um, I know you've seen it. I've been talking about it nonstop with all my friends. I got one of my minor hockey jerseys framed by this company called Frame by Design. Uh, it's it's this guy named Drew who does it. He's so sick at, at doing this. He's like really talented. And um, this place Frame by Design isn't 
one of those typical Jersey framing places where you kind of just give it to them and they're like, Oh, two weeks, you'll have it back. He is like every day we're emailing back and forth. Like, what do you want for this? What do you want this? Like I got it so custom exactly the way I want it. I had four pictures in it, like the game ticket, a plaque. He did everything um, to a T and would send me proof and examples before he would go through with anything. It was, it was fantastic. He did a great job. Ton of NHL players from the GTA use him as well. I encourage you guys to search him up frame by design on Google or Instagram or framebydesign.com and you can find him at jerseyframing.ca so framed by design highly recommended he did a fantastic job with my jersey he's the man so um definitely check them out yeah dude um the frame looked sick i know the pics that you sent me looked awesome and then uh, him adding a few extra pics in on the frame just looked amazing overall so definitely uh, everyone go check him out yeah and let's talk about the bachelorette we just finished we had a, a double header this week and um it was intense we're in the final three now uh what's your take cards let's, let's hear it honestly not like a super exciting episode or anything not much drama going on or anything like that but i guess hometowns at la quinta a little bit different than we normally see not a bad episode though i feel like ben should have spoke up and uh said how he felt it might have changed the outcome of where he was uh in the standings and uh he wouldn't have been going home so early here and maybe had a shot at it but uh, no, that's that's my take on it this week. I'm just really excited for next week, a little double header and wrap it up right before Christmas. How about you? Yeah, well, just to touch on the Ben thing there, he kind of went through this lesson before when he waited to be the last person to talk to Tasha that one night and then didn't get a chance. He didn't speak up and like same thing. He just didn't didn't speak up and it, it's going to cost him. And yeah, uh, I, I like the episode, obviously different different style with the hometowns being in the same spot, but um, it was pretty cool that the guys got to put their own spin on it. And uh, yeah, next week's going to be exciting. Looks like they're foreshadowing some drama. And uh, yeah, I think we're in for a, a good finish here. All right. And that just about does it for this uh, week's segment. Uh, super awesome episode. Great to hear from Shrampy and wishing him all the best moving forward. Um, and super excited about next week's guest. We have uh, Darren Dreger from uh, TSN on the pod. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next week.